listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. First, I want to give a big shout out to our brand new Patreon members, Amanda Marie and Linda Adams. Thank you so much for your support. It is because of you and our other Patreon supporters, we are able to continue to do what we do. Paula and I are so appreciative that you, Amanda, and Linda would do such a wonderful thing for us. If you out there would also love to support us, head on over to patreon.com slash Ohio Mysteries. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Ohio Mysteries. There you will have access to special episodes, including full interviews with detectives from our past episodes. Let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time for a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our storyteller and journalist who spent an award-winning 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Ohioans definitely saw their share of action during the American Civil War from 1861 to 1865. Not only did 300,000 Buckeyes enlist in the Union Army, We gave the North some of its most famous generals, Ulysses S. Grant, William Tecumseh Sherman, George Custer, George McClellan, and James Garfield, to name just a few. But there are not many places you can go to in Ohio to visit that important chapter in our country's history. There was only one military push that ever crossed our borders— That's when Confederate General John Morgan defied orders and took a few hundred men into Ohio to raid businesses and farms. Morgan said his goal was to divert Union troops back to Ohio to deal with his little band of troublemakers. Morgan's raiders made it all the way into Northeast Ohio before they were killed or captured in Columbiana County. Now, there are at least a couple of roadside markers memorializing the showdown with Morgan's Raiders. But if you really want to stand on ground associated with the Civil War, there's only one place in all of Ohio. Johnson's Island, three miles east of Sandusky, in Sandusky Bay, and within sight of Cedar Point. It was turned into a prisoner of war camp for Confederate officers, and during its three-year span, more than 15,000 prisoners would unwillingly make the island their home. The camp itself is long gone, but you can still visit the island, walk the cemetery that holds more than 200 remains, read the script on three large monuments, and look out toward Lake Erie, while you imagine the story I'm about to tell you. Johnson's Island is a 300-acre oval of land in Sandusky Bay, named for the guy who took ownership of it in 1852, Leonard Johnson. A few months after the Civil War broke out in 1861, federal officials leased the island from Johnson, paying $500 a year for it. They thought it would make a perfect prisoner-of-war camp. 
It was filled with woods of hickory and oak trees, so the lumber needed to build it was right there. And being an island, that would present a challenge for anyone wanting to escape. They would have to swim or walk over winter ice to get to the mainland. Johnson's Island was the only Union POW camp designated for Confederate officers, and it was designed to hold up to 2,500 of them. But later, it would come to hold a handful of other types of prisoners, including spies and guerrillas. When the prison opened in April of 1862, that was just one year after the war had begun, it took up 17 acres on the island. There were a dozen barracks, each two stories high, a hospital, latrines, a couple of mess halls, a store. It was all surrounded by a 15-foot-high wooden stockade. The prison was overseen by the 128th Ohio Volunteer Infantry, many of them men from throughout Northwest Ohio. Union officers and guards lived outside the camp, where there were 40 more buildings ranging from barns and forts to sleeping quarters and ammunition depots. The Confederate prisoners did not like their guards, and not just for the reasons you would expect. There was rigid enforcement of the rules, of course, which sometimes resulted in a prisoner being wounded and, at least twice, in a prisoner being killed. But the guards were volunteers, recruited through newspaper ads. For the most part, they had no military experience and were exempt from field service. That meant Confederate officers had to take commands from soldiers who had never seen battle and would never see battle. You can imagine the resentment. By some accounts, prison life wasn't too bad, at least during the warm weather months. On paper, it certainly seemed the prisoners were well cared for. Johnson's Island enjoyed one of the lowest mortality rates of any Civil War prison on either side. Certainly, Ohioans thought they were providing a top-notch facility. When the camp opened, the Sandusky Register described it this way. In summertime, it would be a most delightful retreat. We could almost envy the secesh, their island homes. In front of the barracks and gently sloping down to the water's edge is a fine stretch of meadow from which extend away the placid waters of the bay. At the right, Sandusky lies in sight, and at the left is seen Cedar Point with its light, and beyond looms up the blue waters of the lake. At the rear of the buildings and within the enclosure is a beautiful maple grove which will make a cool, pleasant promenade wherein the gentlemen can take the air and ruminate on the bounties of nature and the delightful workings of succession. For the, you know, They had to get a little dig in at the end there. For their part, the prisoners did their best to create a community. They put on plays, organized craft-making events, even published a newsletter. Musicians had access to instruments, and prisoners could play almost every game and sport that was trendy in the 1860s. Many prisoners kept autograph books, a way to collect the names and hometowns of men they were serving time with. They could even purchase a formal book for this purpose at the prison store, 
It had the word autograph written in gold on the cover. Prisoners were allowed to send and receive letters on a regular basis, and as long as they had formal permission from the commandant, they could request their family send them money. Any money coming in would be recorded in the name of the prisoner, who could then shop at the prison store and have the amount deducted from their credit. One rule regarding letters led to an interesting incident. Letters could be no more than one page, whether coming or going. To make the most of outgoing letters, prisoners used every square inch of the page to write their messages. As for the letters coming in, if it was more than one page, it either wasn't delivered at all, or it was removed from the envelope and the envelope given to the prisoner to see he had missed out, which seems kind of cruel. So, when Confederate General Jeff Thompson was captured and taken to Johnson's Island in September of 1863, he learned about the letter rule and resolved to try and do something about it. There was a group of guards who were responsible for reading all the communication to make sure nothing important was being passed on. Thompson struck a secret deal with them. If they would pass on letters that were more than one page, after censoring them, of course, then the receiving prisoner would pay them two and a half cents a page. The guards agreed. After all, they could make several extra dollars a day. Unfortunately, a prisoner, maybe someone who didn't realize that those in authority had no idea about this scheme, complain to a warden about having to pay a dime to receive a four-page letter from home. The surprised warden investigated the matter, and after they found out what was going on, the one-page rule was reinforced. By the way, you can see a handful of original letters from Johnson's Island prisoners on display at the nearby Maritime Museum of Sandusky. One of them, written by L.D. Hatch, gives some insight into the struggles of being a prisoner. He wrote, For several months we suffered here very much for something to eat, but all restrictions have now been taken off the prison store and we are living well. The extreme cold of last winter and the changeableness of the climate has been a severe shock to many of our men. I noticed a great deal of sickness, especially among the prisoners captured at Nashville. Nearly all of them have suffered with rheumatism or pneumonia since their arrival. Another letter on display reveals there was a way for a prisoner to get released from Johnson's Island. All he had to do was take an oath of allegiance to the United States. Once he requested to do this, he was removed from the general prison population to keep him safe until his request was processed. Only a small number of prisoners asked to take the oath until the final months of the war in 1865 when they all realized the South was not going to win. A letter by Lieutenant Tom Wallace of Kentucky to his mom 
explained the soul-searching he had done before deciding to, as he put it, swallow the eagle. He wrote, I think that most all of my comrades have or will do as I have. I don't think I have done wrong. I had no idea of taking the oath until I heard of the surrender of Johnston, and then I thought it worse than foolish to wait any longer. The cause that I have espoused for four years and have been as true to in thought and action as any man could be is now undoubtedly dead. Consequently, I think the best thing I can do is to become a quiet citizen of the United States. Men who took the oath were processed and then released to find their own way home. I found an article in The Plain Dealer from 1862 that suggested nobody really expected the officers to stay true to their word. In that article, three men who took the oath were passing through Cleveland on their way home to Virginia, and the story concluded, very likely they will be fighting against the Stars and Stripes as soon as they can possibly make the necessary arrangements to do so. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Of course, there was another way out of the prison escape. A few may have tried to swim to the peninsula, but the most popular season for trying was winter, when Lake Erie froze and offered a route to Canada. Local newspapers who wrote about Johnson's Island frequently loved to share stories about escape attempts. Some were successful. A story in March of 1864 said, quote, Quite a number of Johnny Rebs succeeded in making their escape from the island over the winter. But the story went on to say most were retaken on the mainland, except for three. That trio left on New Year's Day, crossed the ice to the peninsula in Ottawa County, stole horses and took them to Port Clinton, then hopped a train to Detroit, after which the trail went cold. Less lucky were a group of prisoners who attempted to make a dash for it in November of 1863, just after midnight. Now, the men dug a hole under the stockade fence. The first four men scrambled underneath it, but the fifth man was too big and he got stuck. It started to rain and the mud managed to wedge the big fellow in even more. His buddies on both sides of the fence tried pulling him in either direction, but it was hopeless. 
Once it was clear the man wasn't budging and their efforts to free him were sure to draw attention, the men on the outside of the stockade made their way to the other side of the island. They were hoping to have time to lash some wood together for a raft. Meanwhile, the would-be escapees on the inside of the fence, who were still waiting for their turn to crawl through, had no choice but to turn around in disgust and go back to the barracks. The commotion did indeed bring the guards, and their lanterns revealed the muddied head of a prisoner peering up at them from a hole in the ground. There were some anxious moments as this prisoner tried to explain with muskets aimed at his head, why he couldn't obey their orders for him to stand up. The guards finally understood and dug him out, while others scoured the island and retrieved the other four escapees before they had a chance to leave the shore. One clever idea for escape was revealed in a story in July of 1864, when it was discovered that tin cans sent to the prisoner's store and labeled as fruit, actually contained small life preservers. But trying to escape could prove deadly. In December of 1864, after the Sandusky Bay had frozen over, 30 men attempted to escape by leaping the prison enclosure in the early morning darkness. John Bowles, a second lieutenant from Kentucky and son of the president of the Louisville Bank, was shot and killed. Everyone else was recaptured, three of them by a farmer who saw them fleeing across the peninsula, aimed his gun and warned them to stop or hit open fire. They halted and he marched them back. The only other prisoner known to be killed by a guard was Lieutenant Elijah Gibson of the 11th Arkansas Infantry. Gibson was out of his prison block after curfew and was ordered to return. When he didn't, he was shot dead on August the 9th, 1862. The real killer at Johnson's Island, however, was the weather. Many of the 200-plus prisoners who died at the camp owed it to Ohio's harsh winters, something many of the Southerners had never experienced before. Others died of disease, The first man to be buried at the cemetery was First Lieutenant R.M. Ray. He was in the very first group of prisoners to arrive at the camp in April of 1862. He didn't last two months before dying of typhoid fever. Johnson's Island was also a place where military courts sent men to be executed. One incident, in particular, nearly led to a crisis. In May of 1863, a military court in Cincinnati sent two rebel spies from Kentucky named Corbin and McGraw to be put before a firing squad at Johnson's Island. Reporters permitted on the island to witness it wrote graphically of the event, how the men had a letter read thanking the prison for their fair treatment, how they were taken to the execution site riding in a wagon with their own coffins and how each were fired upon by 16 muskets and died instantaneously. Their bodies were sent home to Kentucky. When authorities in the South read these stories, they cried foul. 
Apparently, there are commonly accepted standards for deeming someone a spy. Best I understand it, if you are a civilian and you are conducting your spy efforts behind enemy lines, then you can be shot. In the case of Corbin and McGraw, they were caught dressed as civilians, recruiting soldiers and carrying military communications in Kentucky, but behind Union lines. Confederate authorities said since they were caught in Kentucky, and that was a southern state, they shouldn't have been executed. In retaliation, the South selected two Union captains from their camps and sentenced them to death. Union officials warned, hey, if those two captains were killed, they would kill two officers they held in captivity, one of them being the son of Robert E. Lee, the Confederate commander-in-chief. This escalating game of vengeance did not sit well with the Confederate officers on Johnson's Island, who clearly saw that they and their kind were going to become pawns. So they drafted and signed a letter to Confederate President Jeff Davis denouncing the planned execution of those two Union captains. Fortunately, cooler heads prevailed. The Union captains were traded for a Confederate general, and that particular tension came to an end. Not all of those sent to Johnson's Island for execution were Southerners, however. In at least one case, the condemned was from the North. In October of 1863, Reuben Stout of Indiana was convicted of desertion and murder. A story out of Sandusky said he spent his final days at Johnson's Island writing his loved ones, including three brothers who were currently serving in the Union Army, and that when it came time to walk to his fate, four other condemned men bade him farewell with tears and tender words. I get the impression Stout's family disavowed him and his actions. Nobody claimed his body, and he was buried right there in the prison graveyard. Over its three years of existence, Johnson's Island became a bit of a who's who of the Confederacy, No fewer than 25 generals were incarcerated there. Among them, Isaac Trimble and James Archer, both captured at the Battle of Gettysburg. Others who spent time at Johnson's Island were William Cabell, who later became the mayor of Dallas, and Lieutenant Christopher Columbus Nash, who later became a sheriff in Louisiana and directed the killing of up to 150 black men in an infamous event known as the Colfax Massacre of 1873. There was another big excitement that happened on the island in November of 1863 when the Union discovered a Confederate plot to break the prisoners out. The rebels had taken possession of a gunboat and planned to attack from Canada, taking on the USS Michigan, which was a Union gunboat stationed on Lake Erie, and rescuing every one of the Confederate officers. 
The plot was foiled before it got off the ground, but it did indirectly lead to a couple of deaths. The army sent hundreds of new troops to Johnson's Island to reinforce the guards there in light of this plot, and soldiers had to build new quarters for them all. But during construction, a powerful storm moved through, and a gale blew down an incomplete building, crushing two men to death, Frederick Keller and John Knox. Others were injured. But efforts to reinforce the camp continued, as a matter of fact, to make sure nobody thought about invading Johnson's Island again, two new forts were built, Fort Johnson and Fort Hill. In hindsight, they could have saved the money. The forts became operational in March of 1865. It was just a couple of weeks later that the Confederacy surrendered and the war was over. It was time to release the prisoners, who now had reached a peak population of 3,200. The prison camp was abandoned. In 1889, a group of farmers and newspaper men on a sightseeing trip through Ohio stopped at the neglected cemetery. They were appalled. They organized an effort in which citizens of Georgia raised money to replace all the decaying wooden cemetery markers with good, strong Georgia marble. Railroad companies transported the markers for free, and Leonard Johnson, who still owned the island, furnished teams of horses to haul the markers from the Johnson's Island dock to the cemetery. You can visit the island today. There's a bridge that connects it to the mainland. Last I checked, you needed $2 in cash to pay a toll. And there are a lot of people living there. As residential development grew, the Civil War-related buildings were destroyed. All that remains of its time as a Civil War prison is that cemetery. There are 206 graves marked with headstones, but... In recent years, ground-penetrating radar found evidence of more grave sites beyond the fence of the cemetery. According to a pair of monuments installed in 2003 by the United Daughters of the Confederacy and Sons of Confederate Veterans, there are at least 267 remains resting below the surface. A diagram on one of the monuments shows what is believed to be the additional locations of those graves. The site also has a third, much older monument, a huge bronze memorial installed in 1910 at an event that was attended by hundreds of veterans from the North and South. General George Washington Gordon, who was imprisoned on the island, gave the main address. And yeah... I do see the irony that there was a general named for America's most famous general and first president who went on to fight against the country that his namesake established. The cemetery is federal property. It's maintained by the Veterans Administration. But there's a preservation society that keeps a website with a lot of historical information, as well as a roll call of all the known prisoners from the island. If you want to plan a trip there, be sure to check out this website before you go. It's johnsonsisland.org. That site, by the way, will also tell you where to find that 
Johnson's Island display in the museum that's over in Sandusky. I've got one more little side story here for you. Maybe relevant, maybe not, but interesting nonetheless. Our good friend Michael Bonanno from the Facebook group Too Late for Autographs mentioned to us the grave of an unknown soldier at Lakeside Cemetery in Bay Village. Historians are very intrigued by the occupant of this grave. What we know about the man is that he washed ashore in Bay Village during the Civil War and was buried in a Union uniform that he was wearing. Now, since there was no fighting going on up here, there are limited reasons for a man in a soldier's uniform to wash up on Lake Erie shores. One idea is that he could have come from the Union gunboat I mentioned, the USS Michigan, maybe ended up overboard somehow. But the other theory is that he was a prisoner from Johnson's Island who'd gotten his hands on a uniform and escaped by impersonating a Union soldier. I found evidence that such a thing was known to happen. A story in the Cleveland Plain Dealer in January of 1865 said the Army was offering a $100 reward for the arrest of a rebel prisoner who escaped Johnson's Island disguised as a Union officer. The unknown soldier at Lakeside Cemetery is, as I said, an intriguing case, but I'm afraid his identity will forever remain a mystery. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. I promise you will not be disappointed. Paula has put a lot of work into that page. You'll be able to find any of the episodes you are looking for, any of our Akron Beacon Journal crossovers. We'll see you here Wednesday, and then we'll see you back here next Sunday for another episode as well. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.